Hi, and welcome to the Nook Podcast, hosted by the Nook Online, a base camp for women on the rise. I'm Noah. And I'm Kim. Nook for short. The Nook is a membership-based community for women around the world to connect, uplift, educate, and empower one another. It's a place for us to pause and catch our breath. Each week on this podcast, we'll be having meaningful discussions with some incredible experts within our community on multifaceted subjects ranging from leadership and entrepreneurship to wellness and relationships. Our hope is that these conversations will spark some fire in your soul, help you live on purpose, live wholeheartedly, and ultimately be in the driver's seat of your life. Joining us this week is Dr. Christina Hallett, an executive coach, keynote speaker, board-certified clinical psychologist, and associate professor of psychology at Bay Path University. She specializes in harnessing the positive power of stress, self-compassion, and radical self-care. She helps driven professionals banish burnout and develop skills to make stress work to their advantage to increase focus, productivity, and well-being. She shares an approach to living through changes in mindset, perspective, core beliefs, and everyday practices that enhances resilience, leadership, communication, and performance. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Hallett. Can we call you Christina? Please do call me Christina, and I'm delighted to have this chance to talk with you. This is so exciting. Thank you. Wonderful to have you. So my first question is, did you always know you were going to be a psychologist and a coach? And what was not, your path to get here? Yeah, not at all. And I'll try to make this short, but uh, it's one of the signature stories from my life. So when I was a child, I was always going to be a pediatrician. There was no doubt about it. When I was five years old, my birthday's in July, and one of the best gift I ever got was a real first aid kit. This is back in the days of Mercurochrome. So I had Mercurochrome and Band-Aids, like you name it, gauze, the whole thing, in the blue metal case that said first aid. My dad was in charge of the lifeguards for the town, so that was a lifeguard first aid kit. I would use it on everyone. I volunteered with my local pediatricians. Literally everyone in my life knew. I went to Wellesley College, and I was pre-med, so my was a biology major, and then in my junior year, I added on a psychology major for fun. So ultimately it was a double major. And here's what happened. I was actually in, I had taken my medical college admission tests. I had taken all of the cases, the courses. I was in my last semester of physics, which I despised. I'd already completed organic chemistry. I was in a med school interview and someone said to me, why do you want to go to medical school? It was a very standard question, no big surprise. Yeah. Literally, in that moment, my mouth kept talking and saying something reasonable, but I don't know what it was. And in my head, I thought, I don't want to go to medical school. I, <laughs> what am I doing? Oh, no. And so I finished up, walked away, literally went and called my family. They're about an hour away. Now, understand, they wanted me to be a lawyer, so... Whatever, right? So and I called. pretty psyched about you not wanting to be right in medical school. Yeah, so I called and said, I'm not going to go to medical school. They literally said, we'll be there in an hour because this was such an abrupt departure from anything that anyone had ever known about me. 
And so they came, we went out to dinner, probably like Red Robin or someplace like that. And if that was even around back then, and they said, well, what are you going to do? I know that they were like crossing their fingers, please let it be law school. And I said, I'm going to be a psychologist. You and what was should... that reaction? <laughs> yeah. If you had seen the look on their face, they were like, oh, that's Maybe you nice. should go to med school. <laughs> You're right. You know, what are you doing? But literally it started then and it's never stopped. I've been fascinated. I love the field. I just, I really like people and I like learning and I like being able to connect with people because I really think that connecting with others, that's how our own lives get better and how we start to make the world a better place. And so I've just worked across a whole variety of different settings. Outpatient, I've run children's inpatient, I've worked in the prison system, I've worked with teen gang members in the community, uh, I worked at a, a community mental health center for serious, adults with serious mental illness, <clears throat> and now I'm actually a full-time associate professor of psychology at Baypath University in Massachusetts. And so along the ways, I, one of the things I realized is I really needed to work on my own personal development. Like for me to be the best me in the world, I had to keep working and growing professionally and personally. So I went ahead, I was selected for the uh, APA, American Psychological Association Leadership Institute for Women in Psychology, otherwise known as LIWP. And when I went to LIWP, we had to set a career goal. So I said, all right, I'm going to get board certified because not a lot of psychologists go ahead and get board certified. You don't actually have to do it. And so it's literally just testing your own excellence and, and seeing yourself sort of move to the highest heights that you can. So I did that. And at that point, I moved into, and I'm going to do coaching, and I wrote two books, and I started doing professional speaking, because wow. why not? <laughs> I love that attitude. Why not? <laughs> so um, one of the things you specialize in is stress management. So obviously, we all know what stress feels like, but from a psychologist's perspective, what is stress and what are the ways that you see it show up on your couch or in your, uh, what do you call them? Studios. <laughs> Studios, <laughs> chairs. Office. Chair. That's the what office. I was looking for. God, I have not right. had Conversations with other human beings. Yes. My what own are the life. the ways you see stress show up? So there's a couple different things. And so first I want to say something about our traditional understanding of stress. And then I'd like to add in how I deal with stress, particularly in the coaching work that I do. So traditionally, we think of stress as a negative. And one of the things that we all talk about is look at the ways that stress impacts our life. And it's all bad, right? Stress, it increases our heart rate. In fact, it can lead to all sorts of physical illnesses. You, we often associate uh, anxiety, depression, irritability, anger, all of those things with stress. Um, so we can have emotional issues, we can have physical issues, we literally can have an issue in any part of our life, and often when we're under stress, we see more and more of them. We might have difficulty sleeping, or we might be sleeping too much. We literally see this everywhere. We might find that we're less able to concentrate, that we're less productive. So when we're stressed, we tend to look around and go, oh, this is not a good thing. And that's how we've traditionally looked at stress. 
We can also refer to this under the umbrella of burnout. That's one of the other things that we'll see. And what's interesting, like you might be more likely to get a cold because your immune system is lowered because of burnout, right? Your, your interactions with your family or your coworkers might start getting really problematic, or you might just be grumpy and like, well, nobody does their job kind of thing. All of those are what we tend to think of as the responses of stress. And there's a number of things that go on in terms of our internal working of our body, levels of neurotransmitters, things like that. So that's the traditional way that we've looked at it. But there's research by this phenomenal psychologist, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, out of Stanford University. And what she talks about is stress as a positive. And so one of the things that I've begun to do is to talk with people to do speaking engagements and coaching around harnessing the positive power of stress. And there's three main elements to this. Number one, if you're really stressed about, if there's a lot of stress that's going on, what you know is that you have increased concentration. Now, what we typically have said with stress is, oh, I can't concentrate on anything. But if we think about it, it's more like, hmm, I'm stressed about getting this report done for work. So my husband says, what are we having for dinner? And I'm like, oh, I can't think. It's not that we can't think about anything. It's that we're hyper-focused on whatever that object of stress is, so to speak. So we have increased focus. We also literally have increased energy. So when there's a stressor going on, and I should point out, stressors can be good things too. If we looked at that list of life events that are stressful, getting married, buying a house, getting a promotion, starting a new job, like winning the lottery, right? A stress is something that's different that's going on in your environment that's causing a response in you. We're looking at it really broadly. So we have more energy in, in part, that's because we've got different levels of neurotransmitters going on in our body. We get a little more of that adrenaline. And so we've got more energy, better focus. And the third thing is that when there's stress that we perceive, that's a sign that this is something that matters to us. So it's actually an opportunity to engage in something that has meaning. So if we think about it, hey, so if there's stress going on, I'm going to have better concentration, more energy, and I am absolutely certain that this is something that has meaning to me. That's pretty powerful because literally, if you just start using that mindset about that's what stress is, it can change your body's internal response to what those stresses are. So I gave you that whole list of things that can be going on in your body. One of the, can I just tell you this one little piece of research? Because I, I think that you're going to like this. There was a, a study. And so literally, they put people through a stressor and they were measuring levels of cortisol and then levels of another hormone in the body. And the other hormone was DHEA. So DHEA, when cortisol goes up and DHEA stays the same, your heart gets impacted. That is a negative effect of stress. So they stressed people, measured their cortisol, their cortisol went up, their DHEA, DHEA was the same. And all they had done was say to these people, eh, stress is bad for you, it hurts your body, it'll kill you. They probably didn't say it'll kill you, but that kind of thing. So then the other group, they said a version of what I just told you. And this was research done by Dr. Aliyah Crum, who's also at Stanford. So they gave them the positive mindset view of stress, put them through the same stressor. 
their cortisol went up, which it should. That's great. They were stressed, but their DHEA went up. And what that meant was just by having a different mindset, their body was producing different levels of neurochemicals that were protecting their body from the harmful effects of stress, just from a mindset intervention. I, to my mind, that just blows me away. That's a, yeah, fantastic study. How interesting. Um, I would love to hear how you've worked with and coached somebody through who walks into your office and says, I, I'm so stressed out and how you helped. What are the ways you actually help shift them to, to have that more positive mindset? Yeah. So one of the things I do is I start with, tell me about it. And right away, what I'm trying to do, and in fact, am doing that's one of the things i'm pretty good at is forming connections and relationships with people so immediately i'm focusing on creating that connection we already know that once we are connected to other people and feeling less isolated that's going to decrease the impact of stress it doesn't mean it goes away you know if something tragic just happened to someone you're not like oh phenomenal i talked to someone it's all gone so we start connecting and i start listening and then they tell me about what it is and we discuss this in order for me to, I guess the best way to describe it is to get a sense of why they think this is stressful. And in what way is this stress interfering with their life or their functioning? At that point, what I do is I usually offer them a similar explanation to what I just shared with you and your audience, including the, some of that research study and some other research studies. And then we begin talking about what are some of the action steps that they can take. And so one of the things that I believe is that you need to have a belief that something can be different to create motivation to take action to get results. And so that rather than the, I don't feel motivated, so I don't do anything. And people sit around and wait for eternity to get motivated. Like that's not, just not going to happen. So instead it's creating that belief system and then setting up a whole bunch of different interventions that they can take for themselves that will help them incorporate that belief in that mindset and begin with really healthy actions. My favorite actions to suggest are free and take five minutes or less. Can you give us one yeah. example? <laughs> Keeping yes. us hanging. Yeah, I know. You're like, what? Okay. The number one that I'm going to tell you, I know you two know this. I'm sure so many of your listeners do. And literally every time I say to this, people sort of pause and then they roll their eyes. You're like, oh yeah, of course. But the number one best intervention that we can do involves breathing. There's no way to get around this. It really is effective. I say that to people and often what I get is, oh, yeah, right, that doesn't work for me. And then I laugh and I'm like, and yet you're alive. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> breathing works for you. And let's talk a little bit about physiology. And then I talk to them a little bit about the vagal nerves and literally the fact that you cannot be both stressed and calm at the same time. And so breathing helps give your body and your brain messages to calm down. It's, if you think about it, your limbic system gets super activated when it's under stress or distress. And so what we're trying to do is reduce the activation of your limbic system and particularly your amygdala. So that's what breathing does. That there's so many people out there who've done research on this. There's really great material all over the place. So it's really true. And the, one of the things I teach is something called square breathing. Now this is also used in the military. It's actually what they teach 
frankly, they teach everyone, but particularly snipers. This is what they teach snipers so that they can be focused. I know it's like, oh, here we are talking about all these positive things. But in reality, it's the same thing, except the military calls it tactical breathing. I have a son in the army, so I can assure you this is accurate. Wow. So square breathing or tactical breathing, whatever you want to call it, there's even an app. Of course, there's an app for that. There's an <laughs> app for that. Uh, but it's literally breathing in the shape of a square or a box. So it's an inhale for a four count, hold for a four count, exhale for a four count, and hold for a four count. And the reasons for doing that are often when you tell someone to take a deeper breath, because that's really what you need to do to get decrease the arousal. People don't. They breathe instead from their chest, and then they go, <gasps> see, this is not helping me. I'm and that, in fact, increases what you perceive as negative stress. So we really want people to breathe in deep from the belly so that four count really lets them breathe in. Longer than a four count, unless someone's really doing yoga or meditation and breathing, it can be hard to hold for longer than a four count. And three tends to be too short because you don't want any kind of rapid breathing. So it's just a nice four count, hold, exhale four, hold. And you immediately begin to calm down. I also have used this really well for teenagers and college students, particularly around exam anxiety. Right? And one of the things that you can add to that is you can use your finger and on your leg or on the table in front of you, draw the square to keep your mind focused on what you're doing. And that allows you to be using your prefrontal cortex, which also sends a signal to your limbic system. It's okay, chill out. There's no danger. So breathing Absolutely. Number one, no getting around it. And if you do two rounds of that, you're literally, it's less than two minutes, two rounds of four square breathing, and you can immediately begin to see a decrease. So that's one example. There's another example. I'm just going to tell you another app that I love. This one is super cool. This app is called Think Up, and there's a free version and there's a paid version. So I'll talk about the free version. And it allows you to record yourself saying up to four different affirmations. And then it plays it back to you in your own voice. So one of the other things that we know about how our brain works is that hearing something, anything that's multi-sensory, sort of has a greater impact on forming new neural pathways. That's the super exciting thing about rewiring our brain. And when it's your own voice, your brain actually pays attention to it a little bit more than someone else's voice. So if I'm playing this nice little affirmation that says, uh, even when difficult things occur, I'm okay. Or I can handle the, the obstacles I encounter in my life. It could be whatever it is, you know. I love myself. I don't know, whatever. We're not trying to do Stuart Smalley or anything, but you know, it, it could be whatever you want. So that's another great way to reduce stress. And it gives you that little bit of mindfulness in the moment, but the whole thing takes less than a minute. So again, we're really talking free and fast. Wow. So um, you talked a little bit about rewiring neural pathways and you know what, I'd love your thoughts on, you know, if someone comes into your office and is really depressed or anxious, do you think that they can make themselves happier? And, you know, could you maybe share some success stories of women in particular who, 
you've worked with obviously without personal information, but just, you know, women who have done the work and made themselves happier. Um, you know, we really believe in trying to destigmatize mental health and have really honest and open conversations about mental health and mental fitness. And it'd be wonderful to hear from your professional experience of, you know, what do you think? Is it possible to make yourself happier? So I have sort of a multi-level answer to that. Mm -hmm. And so I completely am on board with reducing and eliminating stigma about issues regarding mental health and wellness. That's super important to me. It's also accurate that depression and anxiety are the two biggest issues that we see in our country. Mm -hmm. So there's no question about that. Those are, they're really common. Now that doesn't mean that every single person has an experience of what we call clinical depression or clinical anxiety, meaning that it's so incapacitating that they meet very specific clinical criteria. But every single one of us has gone through experiences where we've been depressed for a period of time, or we have experienced anxiety. I mean, it's pretty impossible to be a human being and interact in the world and not have those. So that's one of the commonalities that I start from. Definitely. What we know is that depending on the individual, there are many things that they can do for themselves. And I will tell you about some success stories. But for some people, given the way the levels of neurotransmitters and neurochemicals are in their brain, they also benefit from not just taking what we think of as interpersonal or psychological actions, but potentially also from the use of medication. And I need to put that out there because that there's nothing wrong with that. I just had a conversation with uh, a young woman the other day and it's literally a situation where she just has gone through several periods of really, really deep depression. And she came in and she's like, you know, the last thing I want to do is medication. And so we talked about how she was feeling and what was going on. And I said, look, I'm just curious, have you ever been sexually active? And she said, yes. And she, I said, oh, do you use any kind of birth control? She said, yeah, oh yeah. I take a birth control pill every day. I said, oh, okay. So hmm, birth control or insulin if you have diabetes, or a thyroid medication if you're having hypothyroid, for example. How are any of those different from a medication that helps the different neurochemicals in your brain be at a level that helps you function better? And she sort of looked at me and she's like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. I'm like, right, are you gonna be like, oh, I don't wanna take medicine, so forget the birth control, or you know, never mind that thyroid medicine, I'll just be sick and unable to move around. And I'm not saying that I, by any means, that I think medicine is the only answer, and it's not right for everyone. But I do think it's important for us to acknowledge that for some people, it's really, really the right course in addition to some other things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, one of the things specifically about depression is the hardest thing to do is to take action. It's sort of the catch-22 of depression. And the one thing that we know makes a difference for depression is what we call behavioral activation or basically taking action. So the thing that's hardest to do is the thing that's going to have the most meaning, it, taking action. And so that's where I start with people, whether or not, and I'm not a prescriber, 
So I will talk to someone about whether or not I think they're in a situation that medication may be helpful, and then I would refer them for a consultation with a um, prescriber. But we start from this whole idea of what does it mean? Like it's common, this is part of our common humanity that people have these experiences. It's absolutely okay and doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or that you're bad if the way that your brain and body and life experiences are coming together in this moment, there's some additional thing. It's having a greater effect. I'm like, okay, have you ever stayed out in the sun too long and gotten a sunburn? Like, not everybody gets sunburned at the same rate. So we have to think about other ways to help people understand this and begin to let go of that shame and the stigma. Because usually it's the person who's carrying that, never mind the rest of the world. And then we talk about what are some things that they can do to take action. And so we begin to look at the thoughts that they engage in. And a big thing that I talk about, I created an acronym called SWAP. So it's swap your beliefs. S is for self-compassion. W is for worthiness. A is ask for and accept help. And P, positive self-talk. So we begin to swap our beliefs, but do this in a compassionate way. Wow. And then that's what really begins to make a difference. So instead of beating ourselves up or giving ourselves all of those negative messages about how wrong this is, we begin saying, I get this. This is a part of human experience. And let's make a plan, ask for and accept help to make a plan to take some actions. And as we build on those actually making a plan and following it through gives us some dopamine. Dopamine and serotonin are connected. This is one of the ways we feel better. So that actually helps us build this. Now it's also true that exercise literally boosts those same chemicals that help us begin to feel better. And so really one of the main things that I talk to people about is what's a way to begin moving your body in some fashion that works, not setting a goal that's not attainable, but what's something? Can you walk around the house? Can you go up and down the stairs three times? And we may be building a small uh, process over time. And I sort of liken it to climbing up a mountain. There's a plateau, climb a little further, plateau, and keep going up because progress is not instantaneous for any of us. And so literally, these are some of the things that I've worked with for women across all of the age spans, from teenagers up until women in their late, no, early 80s. I was going to say late 70s, but early 80s, right? And what we find is that women on the whole are often more willing to come in and to get help, whether it's in psychotherapy or from coaching. So women tend to be a little more open to that but also tend to be carrying a lot of that negative self-talk and a lot of shame or a sense of there's something wrong with me or I'm not good enough, particularly around issues that are connected to mental health and wellness. And so I would say the same thing goes for anxiety. So we begin to do that and then we look for what are as many different sensory experiences that we can help them bring into this situation. So I love essential oils as an example. That's great. The citruses are usually pretty uplifting. So beginning to use essential oils just to sort of get a brighter sense in your environment. We have a strong sense of smell. We're very reactive to that. Or what are other kinds of things they can do? So connecting with other people, um, 
maybe getting reinvolved, but also things like saying no, right? So doing what I call radical self-care. And radical self-care is not just a massage and a bubble bath, although <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge proponent of both of those. But radical <laughs> self-care is knowing your strengths and owning your strengths, saying no to things that just feel like an obligation, saying yes to things that begin to refuel and recharge you. So we put all of that together. It's a lot of actions. And all of those together begin to make a difference. And literally, actually, I was going to say, I, I would say that everyone that I've worked with, sometimes it's faster than others. And again, that's really individual in terms of how much is someone really willing to commit to themselves? Because those stories often are what keep us back. Like, I can't get better. Right? We, and I call those stories. They're just storylines that we're telling us ourselves in our brain. Mm -hmm. So there's, I can think of one woman who came in and that was her story. It was like, I, I'm always going to be miserable. I'm like, well, how do you know? And she's like, because I always have been. I'm like, and what does that have to do with tomorrow? <laughs> like, we can't just look at the evidence of what's gone on, particularly if you haven't tried some of these other interventions. In her particular case, it took quite some time before she was willing to take the risk to challenge that story and to say, you know, maybe it's possible. But that's often all we need is a little window that says, hey, maybe it's possible. So I say, let's just give it a try. Let's do an experiment, create a hypothesis, do an experiment or be a detective, see what it would be like if we do this. And as people begin to take those little steps of risk. Again, we get the dopamine going, we get some of that serotonin going, but we also get a new accumulation of evidence that says, perhaps this story is not the total truth. And so the woman that I'm speaking of is in such a different place now. I mean, completely different place. And she's taking a lot more risks and she's out in public and talking with people and forming new friendships and really has also had a number of career advancements. And I can promise you, when I first met her, she would have told me none of those things would ever happen. Sort of like, I'm doomed and I'm going to stay doomed for the rest of my life. And that's not how the story has to go. Wow. Wow. I love that. I think that's such a great story. And I, it's true for many of us. I heard in that story too, a lot of, you know, taking risk and actually helping, you're, you're helping people build resilience within their exactly. own mind. Um, yeah. I would love if you have any more thoughts on, on resilience and, and other things that, that build resilience in people. Yeah. So one of the things about resilience, we've thought, I have a friend who's a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing. And she's also, so she was running in the marathon and she's also a mental health provider and now a speaker. And she on the outside was a, I'll do anything. I'll never stop from a challenge. She literally uh, did, was it triathlon? She did all, like everything. Basically, if there was like a huge, crazy challenge that I would never <laughs> do, she's like, yeah, I'm all in. And she would do it. Super strong, like a rock, the kind of person everyone would turn to, could always count to, and always had it together. And I say all of this sort of as the backstory because we think about resilience, or at least when I first thought about resilience, we thought about it like those bouncy 
bouncy figures, the kind where if you knocked it down, it immediately bounced back up. And we, there's been a lot of discussion of resilience as bouncing back or bouncing back up. But in talking with my friend, Amy O'Neill is her name, uh, in talking with my friend, she's actually developed, and I concur, a slightly different view of resilience. Resilience is not so much bouncing back as it is going through and allowing yourselves to, yourself to have all of the feelings and experiences of what it's like to go through. So you sort of come out through the other side a different version of yourself. You're not the same because whatever happened has happened. And I think when we talk about bouncing back, we miss the idea that there, we're forgetting that there's been a radical change. Something occurred and now you're different than you were. And there's no judgment. You're not better. You're not worse. You're just different not completely, but you've had a different set of experiences. So from that perspective, that's how I tend to talk about resilience with people and sort of say, so what are the skills to manage something, to get through something? Now, it's going to be no surprise that the skills to become increasing resilient are the same skills I've been talking about. It's connecting with people. It's doing things that have meaning and purpose to you. It's engaging in radical self-care. It's practicing mindfulness. It's breathing. It's using multi-sensory different things. It's being out in nature. Do you know that in Scotland, they have physicians who are starting to prescribe time in nature as an intervention? I think that I is amazing. I love that. <laughs> right? I know. That doesn't fit for you guys perfectly. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. subscribe. <laughs> Yes, right. but it does. There's no question about it. So all of those things, as we do those things, those are ways to increase our resilience. And the good news about that is we can start at this second, like whether or not we sort of have a bank, let's say, of resilience building activities, it doesn't matter because we can always start and be adding to that. And I think it's really helpful for people to see these as skills because when you understand that they're skills, it's not like, well, hey, I was born with no resilience, so I'm screwed, <laughs> right? It's like, and you're lucky because you got it all. It doesn't work that way. Resilience is a skill that we can build and we want to do it underneath that greater umbrella of self-compassion because the more self-compassion we have, the greater our ability to have compassion, empathy, and connection to other people. Connection to other people automatically builds resilience. So, wow. right? It's all it's like the same thing over and over again. So sometimes I'm talking with people and they're like, really? You're you're actually gonna tell me the same thing again? I'm like, yes, yeah, <laughs> guess what? You haven't been doing it. So this might be a good time to start practicing that. Right. And look, I could talk about this all day long, literally for days. We could just keep going and going and going. But that doesn't mean that I don't need to practice building these skills myself. Sometimes I'm doing great with it and I'm like on top of my game and I've got a ton in my resilience bank and I'm like, yeah, I've gone through my all of my situations and experiences and I felt my feelings and I'm at peace and I'm good enough and gosh darn it, I like me, whatever. <laughs> See, I just keep going back to that old Saturday Night Live. What can I tell you? Because it's so silly. And yet, and yet I can still get to the point of being really irritated. 
I can absolutely get to the point where I'm drained, where my self-care begins to fall off, where I'm not connecting. I am definitely a person where if there's a lot going on, I tend to pull into myself. So you wouldn't know it on the outside, except that I'm less visible. And I think that's also really common because as much as I said earlier that women are a little more open to going and getting professional assistance, coaching or psychotherapy, none of us until we've built up that skill are really intrinsically great at saying, Hey, I'm really having a hard time and I need some help. And that's why ask for and accept help is part of that swap acronym because I've said to my friends, my closest friends know, if I disappear, like if you don't hear anything from me for a few days, we use Marco Polo and we send each other videos. I'm like, if I don't send out a polo for a couple of days, call me out on that crap because I'm telling you there's something going on and I'm sort of doing that turtle thing. Hmm. And that's not, so, and my personal goal then becomes to notice it before somebody else calls me out on it and to reach out to somebody else. Wow. So we get to build those skills every day, all day. <laughs> absolutely. I, um, I feel like we absolutely could talk for <laughs> days about these topics. And I mean, I have learned so much and I want to digest all of this um, myself. So um, I'm conscious of, um, of time and we've got to uh, wrap up. But before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you one last question. So I know you've written two books and the title of one of the books is Be Awesome, which I love. <laughs> um, as, as your final parting pieces of advice, could you give our listeners who are predominantly women, but also men, three simple pieces of advice on how to be awesome? Oh, absolutely. And just so you know, awesome is an acronym. So each one of the letters stands for a whole bunch of different things. So I'm going to tell you that the A in awesome stands for awareness and accountability and authenticity. We'll just call that one. So being aware of who we are, allowing ourselves to hold ourselves accountable in a compassionate manner, right? Not beating ourselves up and not letting ourselves off the hook and authentic, really letting our experience be what it is. That's one of those key steps mm. towards being awesome. And the W has to do with wholeheartedness and willingness and worthiness. So it's recognizing that we're all worthy. We don't earn it. We're born that way. We don't have to prove it. Every one of us is worthy of love, care, and compassion just because we're a living, breathing human being. Willingness to take a chance for yourself and I don't mean, I'm not a huge risk taker, but even taking enough of a chance to talk to someone else, to open up a book, to try one little technique differently and see how it goes. And wholehearted goes right along with authenticity in terms of really allowing ourselves to fully be in our life. So I won't, I'll just, that's the A and the W. I won't keep going on. And I'll just say one more thing that I would say is if you can, literally, the basics will never change. If you can move your body some, if you can eat in a reasonably healthy manner, and if you can get a reasonable amount of sleep, those will always be the basic building blocks for 
physical health and mental health and wellness. And they won't change. As cliche as they seem, eat well, sleep well, move your body, that's where it starts. And if you do yourself the favor of adding breathing in, like we talked about, if you add that square breathing in, you're going to be a little more in the present moment and you're going to feel a little calmer and a little more open to seeing the joy around you. And that will let you have a better time experiencing gratitude. Wow. <laughs> thank you so well, much. Wow. Yeah, thank you. I am exceptionally grateful to have had this conversation. I, um, I know I learned so much and I'm sure our listeners will have as well. Thank you so much for your time and oh, been sharing all of your thoughts with, with us. Yes, thank you. wonderful. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you choosing to spend your time with us. For more inspiration, uplifting conversations, and connections with like-minded, driven, and determined women around the world, head over to our website, thenookonline.com, and become a member. Our Nook podcast listeners can take advantage of our founding membership special and get 50% off an annual membership by using the code NOOKPODCAST50. And if you liked and enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and share. Thanks so much.